Hello and welcome back to Real Estate 2020 Vision, the podcast connecting you with the people and the product shaping the future of the residential industry. My name is Guy Westlake, I'm founder of Lavanda, and today it's my pleasure to welcome onto the show Sarah Liu of Fifth Wall. Now, Fifth Wall, if you're not familiar with them already, are arguably the world's leading prop tech venture capital firm, based out of the US, but they invest globally. First of all, Sarah, a very warm welcome onto the show, and thank you so much for making the time to speak to us. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah. Uh, Great to be on here, and uh, thank you again for the invitation. Uh, We always love to chat with our entrepreneurs, uh, especially folks in our network whose companies we're also following, like yourselves. We, of course, got introduced via our interest in Lavanda. Sarah, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about your role at Fifth Wall and how you got into PropTech Venture in the first place. Personally, I'm a VP here at Fifth Wall, and I work primarily on the U.S. real estate tech investing team, investing out of our current $500 million venture fund. Uh, that fund writes checks $10 to $25 million, Series A to C, and I lead a lot of our work in the residential, construction, and transaction spaces. been at Fifth Wall now for about three years. Worn quite a few hats. I always joke that we at Fifth Wall are like a startup ourselves. And so I actually started out as an associate uh, on the advisory team, which does a lot more consulting-like engagement uh, and a lot of value creation work with our portfolio companies, as well as our strategic corporate LPs, who span 70 plus at this point of the largest real estate corporates around the world. I then spent a little bit of time playing a bit of a chief of staff type of role to one of our managing partners, Brad Grohe, and finally landed two years ago now on the investing team full-time again. I started my career over at McKinsey & Company after a very brief stint in private equity real estate, worked in the SF Bay area, and got a lot of exposure to tech. And that's kind of how I got my interests in venture. And so I was very lucky in that a couple folks that I really admired and respected from McKinsey joined Fifth Wall in the early days back in early 2018. The fund was founded in late 2016, early 2017. So they joined Fifth Wall and basically brought me over with them as kind of identifying that this was a fantastic opportunity and a rapid growing fund. And I've been here ever since. Ah, so you're one of the highly prized ex-McKinsey alumni. Tell us, how formative was your McKinsey experience and what exactly does it equip you with that everyone else wants to have a piece of so desperately? You know, I think that it was quite formative in that I don't think anywhere does a better job of preparing you with just kind of that fundamental toolkit of skills to think well, prepare high quality outputs, engage with senior executives and engage really at any level in an effective way. So those foundational skills, I would say, were were pretty critical. But I, to be honest, wasn't there, you know, maybe as long as some folks necessarily were. And I think that in some ways, maybe it's a disadvantage and I didn't get as much exposure to certain things. But in other ways, it also, I think, made it much easier for me to adapt to kind of a much smaller startup environment like Fifth Wall versus, you know, folks who've stayed there a little bit longer. I think um, what I've heard is sometimes it can be tough to go from, you know, a very structured and operationally rigorous place to a 20-person organization where things are changing every day. Can you give us a little insight into the Sarah outside of work? How might your friends and family describe you, for example, or where do you call home? I don't really have a permanent home right now as a result of COVID. Uh, Like uh, the classic COVID stereotype millennial, I had decided to kind of uproot myself from LA, which is where our fund was based and where I was based previously. I went back to Toronto in March 2020, gave up my lease a couple months later and continued to stay in Canada through kind of the worst of it while things were completely locked down. But since then, you know, the last couple of months, I've really been on the road 
Um, I think I mentioned I'm up in Lake Tahoe right now in Northern California, which has been home for about two months. Uh, before that, I was uh, in Big Sky, Montana, Jackson, Wyoming, uh, Aspen, and Steamboat, Colorado, and then Salt Lake City, Utah, kind of just taking advantage of the ski season and uh, working during the week and skiing whenever I could on the weekends. To your other question on what my friends and families would uh, de- describe me as liking to do, it's probably a big, big skier um, and lo- loving to chase snow, big traveler, uh, no, no problem, hopping all over the place. Um, I also really like baking. I've been keeping folks pretty well fed in this house here with a couple of friends I've rented each of these houses with um, in our little pod. And I also do really love doing ceramics as well, actually, is my kind of other big hobby. But unfortunately, haven't had the chance to really do that with uh, studios still closed down. I think you're actually the, the embodiment of what our industry calls a digital nomad. You basically leverage technology to work remotely and still maintain an amazing career whilst you indulge your passion for travel. Yeah, yeah. Digital nomad's a nice way to put it. Digital hobo could be another way to put it as well. Maybe because I'm at a stage in life where I'm a little bit rooted due to family and other obligations, but it genuinely excites me to hear about younger people making the most of technology and harnessing it to explore the world and see it with their own eyes. It's just so exciting. Now tell us, I guess, moving on from that... What is it that motivates you and drives you both in life and in your professional career? I think I've always been, to be honest, a bit of an overachiever, but what's driving me has certainly changed, I would say, over the years. Like as a kid, I feel like that was just what was expected um, in in my household. Uh, And I certainly never wanted to, you know, be considered a failure or be kind of a disappointment to my parents. I'm an only child as well. So kind of all all their... uh, all their eggs are resting in this one basket here. So, I, yeah, I think that maybe if I'd had a couple of siblings, maybe one who became, you know, a doctor or a lawyer or something, who knows what I would have uh, done in my life instead without kind of feeling the need to uh, make sure that the, the family was taken care of down the line. But uh, as an only child, I felt kind of definitely a need to go down one of the more quote-unquote respectable by society career paths. So grew up kind of flip-flopping between doctor and lawyer, didn't even really think about business and certainly had no idea what management consulting was as a kid, of course, Uh, but decided to kind of just, you know, pursue the general path of high achievement, went to a pretty competitive middle school and high school in downtown Toronto, which is where I'm from originally, uh, and then went to UPenn, was in Wharton there and did the business program. So kind of got funneled right into McKinsey based on, you know, people saying that that was the right place to go and that being a great place to start. Uh, and of course, the work there did seem generally interesting, it seemed like there was a lot of travel, which I like doing. So it seemed like a good fit. If I may say so, it sounds a little bit like your career started out as following a path that people expected of you rather than necessarily following your heart, which is obviously so often the way. I would say that up until the point that I really transitioned over onto fifth wall and started kind of digging into venture investing. I never found a job that I was super excited to do in the morning. Like it was much more like, a, oh, I know this is like a good thing to do, or this is the right thing to do, or I'm learning a lot. So that's still good. I would say at this point, I actually love my job. So I feel very lucky that at a pretty early point in my career, I found something I genuinely enjoy doing. I love talking to entrepreneurs. I love doing venture investing and getting to chat with folks who are kind of on the cusp of tech and changing the world, truly. Um, So I'm I'm talking to these very smart people every single day, of course, uh, and just getting to meet folks from all sorts of backgrounds and who have these amazing visions for where our world and the built world is going. So I, I think that now I just love my job. 
And in exploring all these business models and meeting all of these interesting entrepreneurs, does it create an itch that you need to scratch in terms of starting your own startup and, and getting your own business off the ground? Is that something that you aspire to do one day? Have you caught the bug yet? Sometimes it does. I think that if the right opportunity presented itself, I would probably take it. But I also think that for me, like, I can't imagine myself as a solo founder, for example. I don't know how anybody does that. It takes, I mean, so much discipline, but also you're just, it's very lonely. Um, And I think mental health is another issue that's near and dear to my heart. Um, And mental health amongst founders is a huge issue. Um, And only recently getting a little bit more of a spotlight shown on it. But I imagine that being a solo founder would be a pretty difficult and very tough to kind of maintain a healthy mindset all the time. I could imagine myself, you know, going in with more maybe a technical co-founder or something if he thought of the right idea or being in one of the early business hires or starting off as an advisor, maybe and joining a company in the single digit number of employees. Um, that I could see for sure. But yeah, I think that for me, it'd have to be a very, very good idea for me to be willing to leave the investing side of things and forge out on my own. Who are the people, Sarah, who you would say have most influenced you in your career thus far and who've most shaped the professional direction that ultimately you've chosen to take? I think that for me, uh, the people who've by far influenced my life the most at this point are certainly the folks uh, that you mentioned who I worked with at McKinsey, who brought me over to Fifth Wall, uh, Joe Wang and Casey Cleary. Uh, Casey is still a partner who leads our advisory practice here at Fifth Wall now. Uh, Joe since moved on to kind of other opportunities as well after staying three years and helping Casey build up that advisory practice. But the two of them were actually the folks I worked with back when I was like 21 years old and spending my junior summer at McKinsey. Um, And so they were the first folks I really worked with even at McKinsey as well. Um, And then I worked with both of them kind of throughout my time at McKinsey and then also at Fifth Wall. So I think without them bringing me over here, I would be in a probably very different place. I don't know if I would have ended up at Fifth Wall just by myself. It's super interesting that your path to PropTech VC started out, in fact, at McKinsey at a management consultancy. Now, I appreciate you're still early in your VC career, but I'd love, you know, do you have any thoughts on what are the foundational experiences and personality traits that make great VCs? Yeah, I mean, I do think that it helps that you know, my, my family is tangentially involved in real estate just a little bit, um, kind of with individual investments. And I did spend a little bit of time at Divco West, which is a private equity real estate shop on the commercial side. So I think just getting a little bit of real estate exposure and not being completely green to what's going on is at least helpful. Although I certainly have learned the bulk of what I know now about real estate here at Fifth Wall. I think that the other piece is just being very, especially with earlier stage investing, right? Like being very thesis driven, being able to think in a top down kind of way. And that's something that McKinsey especially very much instilled in us is that it's one thing to be detail oriented and get the model right or get kind of the the deck looking really good. But in terms of what actually drives success kind of above that analyst associate level and being able to progress in your career It's one, being able to develop your own theses and kind of source and find the right partners that fit those uh, hypotheses that you have. And it's two, being able to develop good relationships. And that's where I think I mentioned earlier, like at McKinsey, you really learn the ability to communicate well and to communicate effectively with senior executives and folks at any level. And it's that ability to really be able to develop strong relationships across the ecosystem that's really meaningful. I mean, I think everyone in VC emphasizes 
the importance of having a good network and they're not wrong. It's true anywhere, even kind of at a prop tech firm like Fitball, where you know we get a decent amount of inbound and people sending stuff our way because we're known for what we do at this point. But we're still very much always still out and actively hunting as well. We're not just farmers over here. Can you share a bit of insight into some of the deals and projects you've been working on at Fifth Wall recently? Yeah, I mean, the deal pipeline's been very, very strong. So we uh, have been doing deals nonstop. I feel like I go to investment committee about every week right now. Uh, lots of interesting work overall. I won't dive too deeply into specific deals since a couple of them are still not formally closed or announced yet. Uh, we did just announce one, a signer, that I'm very excited about. Uh, they're a subcontractor software platform. And I think that they have the potential to be like a pro core for subcontractors. We've looked at construction a lot, including myself in particular, all sorts of different solutions in this space, but most of them are hyper competitive. And to be honest, I would say have somewhat limited market size where it feels like a point solution and doesn't have a ton of platform potential. And what I love about Assigner is the fact that I do think it actually could become a true platform and integrate and have some type of marketplace eventually the way that Procore does. Obviously, Procore being the big outcome in construction tech most recently, um, finding another company that has that type of potential is very exciting. So that's one that I love right now. And then the other space I'm spending quite a lot of time on is residential, in particular single family um, and single family rentals, just because we're seeing a ton of macro tailwinds with unfortunately housing affordability hitting kind of all-time lows here with prices spiking over in the U.S., Uh, And then at the same time, everyone wanting to move more into the suburbs, have a little more room, have kind of more of an outdoor space as well with COVID. So what we're seeing is this kind of exodus from cities to suburbs and people who unfortunately can't actually afford to buy are ultimately just remaining renters, but switching from multifamily to single family rentals. And so we're seeing institutional capital follow that as well. And a ton of activity in that space. That's very interesting. We've heard exactly the same thing from some of our multifamily partners who are now moving into the single family space due to the uh, the change in dynamics. So very, very interesting to see that that's playing out across the pond as well. There's a huge amount of activity in the prop tech market at the moment and things are evolving very, very quickly. So I'd love to hear from Fifth Wall standpoint, where do you see prop tech in terms of its maturity? I mean, I think from the Fifth Wall standpoint, we've only seen our thesis, I think, confirmed over the last 12 to 18 months in a fantastic way. Fund One, like I mentioned, was started in late 2016, early 2017. And so now that we're kind of in mid-2021, we're at that kind of perfect, you know, four to five year sweet spot where a lot of our deals are starting to reach those exit points. And so we've started to really see, I would say, our initial thesis as a fund validated. And so from our perspective, PropTech is probably where fintech was maybe a couple years ago, like five years ago, maybe, where it's it's quite nascent and folks are thinking, wow, this is growing so quickly. It's already getting so much bigger. But our view is it's it's still only starting. And the folks who thought that, you know, oh, wow, a couple billion in fintech versus a couple hundred million a few years ago, like they thought that that might be kind of the peak. And now you look at obviously Stripe and some of those other huge companies and the valuations that we're seeing. I, I think that PropTech's in a similar spot and that we're really only getting started. Do you think progress in PropTech has been materially impacted or delayed by COVID? For example, what's been the impact upon your portfolio companies and indeed upon Fifth Wall as a fund itself? COVID, I think, had had an impact um, on, on our operations as well. I would say that we're very fortunate in that despite being built world investors, 
we can do our job as investors remotely versus I certainly saw plenty of our portfolio companies who were, you know, truly entrenched in the built world and required things to be open to operate suffer much more strongly, especially in sectors like hospitality, when people couldn't travel at all. And short-term rentals, of course, took a huge dive. We also saw that, frankly, with our LPs as well. Marriott is one of our LPs, for example. Um, And we have many, many office owner LPs, retail owner LPs who saw their spaces completely closed, people giving up their spaces, their tenants going out of business. So it was, I would say, a tough time. Um, I don't think we suffered as directly as much, but we certainly felt the gravity of the situation just given where we stand within our network. Even just for us directly, you know, we just gotten a pretty massive new office in January, kind of with the plans that it would grow with us, given our team was just expanding so quickly. And we went from being a team that, generally speaking, was very used to seeing each other every day and going into the office pretty much every day to to being a team that's on Zoom. And I would say that at this point, half our team are folks who are new and joined in the last year and who I've never met in person, which is a pretty interesting dynamic to have for people who you're working with on still a relatively small team. Our investing team has stayed pretty lean in terms of it's it's all people who were on the team pre-COVID as well, but we're about to do our first round of hiring. So that's certainly presenting, I would say, its first round of challenges just because, you know, especially kind of in this outward facing investing role, you want to make sure that folks are a good fit and a good representation of the firm, right? Uh, you're, these are people you're sending out to, to be representatives of Fifth Wall with entrepreneurs and with other VCs. And it's it's tough to actually get a good sense of who someone is when you're just on Zoom because you're losing all of the kind of informal chatter that is basically the composition of firm culture, right? Firm culture isn't based off of the way that you run formal meetings. It's much more based off of like people having lunch together, people grabbing drinks, people going to happy hour. You you kind of lost the component of firm culture there that actually allows you to tell kind of who someone is behind the scenes. And even with our entrepreneurs as well, it's the same experience. And that's why for the last month or two now, we've actually restarted travel and we've been meeting people in person because we do see the value and actually having dinner with someone and being able to understand kind of how they operate besides just in the workplace. You say you're embarking on a new phase of hiring. One of the things I think that many businesses are struggling with right now, particularly working in a remote environment, is onboarding new employees into the business. How are you going about that? Is there some kind of secret source you can share with us? How are you getting your new employees up to speed, productive, living and breathing the company culture? I mean, I think that we do what we can Um, We certainly don't have it perfect. Like Fifth Wall is in a lot of ways like a startup ourselves. We went from 200 million in AUM when I joined about three years ago to 2.5 billion in AUM now. So uh, we've grown at about the same pace that we like our investments to grow at. Uh, And as a result of that, I would say that you know, we do our best operationally with a lot of things, but I can't say at all that we, we have it perfectly nailed down because things are changing all the time. And so, you know, when someone joins, we do our best to set them up on you know, a bunch of relevant Zoom calls with people. Nowadays, if someone's joining and they're in a city where we have other people, then we'll try to get someone to at least meet them in person and kind of do a little bit of a good intro meeting there. And I would say that we do have kind of a, a scrappy culture too, where folks are hired because we know that they can survive with kind of a lot of ambiguity and they can kind of land on their feet and start running pretty much immediately without too much guidance. Uh, because the truth is, I would say that 
we're not necessarily, you know, a fund that's been around 20 years, has done things the same way for the last 15 years, and has all these things kind of very clearly cut and dry and has someone to hold your hand along the way. Um, I think that we're, we're a pretty entrepreneurial organization. So fortunately, we've also brought on a lot of folks who I would say uh, have done a good job just landing on their feet and knowing how to navigate an org themselves too. Like any scrappy startup, I'm sure over the last 12 months, you guys have had to make some super tough decisions. I'd love to hear what those decisions were and whether with hindsight, you think you took the right decisions at the right time. Yeah, I mean, I think that as a fund, we certainly had to think about where we wanted to put our follow-on investments, for example, in our existing portfolio companies as they were struggling, who to maybe spend the more time with versus less. And part of that was dictated as well by you know, the broader investor base. In some cases, when we were coming into a company um, at an earlier stage and we were one of the main kind of institutional investors versus in other cases where, you know, we don't have favorite kids uh, as VCs. We want to make sure that we're we're treating everyone well. But if that person has kind of a broader support system because it's a later stage business and they've taken on a bunch of additional capital from others, then we usually sometimes are able to let the onus fall a little bit on our fellow co-investors in those situations. So, you know, we, we did have to think about where we want to spend time and how it made the most sense to operate as a firm. And more, more than anything, I think that the toughest thing really was just continuing to do our day jobs too, right? Like there was for a couple months there, very high economic uncertainty in terms of where we were going to go. Nowadays, things feel like a clear boom and everyone is kind of at at an all-time high in optimism and in the rate of capital deployment. But there was probably a three to six month period where it was very difficult to raise money and Everyone, including ourselves, kind of battened down the hatches, looked internally on to support our existing portfolio companies. And we had to make some tough calls because there were other new entrepreneurs who we did quite like and who we did often think were building great businesses, but just weren't sure on whether or not the market would support those businesses six to 12 months down the line. What are the lessons that you've banked over the last 12 months that you'll be taking forward with you in your career? Certainly some some good lessons learned. I think one is just The emphasis on people and culture, I think, cannot be lost. We were able to do our jobs, I would say, at an acceptable level when everything was completely shut down. But I have already noticed a difference being able to start meeting people in person again, that there really is a difference in just the energy that you get and the amount that you can learn from people and the relationships that you can build with people as well. I think every entrepreneur that we've met in person has said to us, I'm so glad that you are willing to come out here in person. And it's so nice to actually get to meet you in person. It does matter, I would say. So as someone who is investing in tech and always thinking about kind of uh, tech forward ways to operate, I would say one of my learnings is that we certainly can't you know, skew too far in one direction and forget that this people element and this human in-person element is still very important as well. And that's why I fully believe that the future is very much going to be a hybrid model where people are still going to probably meet in person at least a couple days a week. I, I think that the other big learning is just, you know, human adaptability. I don't think anyone thought that it would go maybe as smoothly as it has in other ways. 
right? Like it was difficult and it wasn't as great as status quo, but it in some ways went remarkably well. Like no one prepared to be remote for more than a year and we all fared pretty well and we all got the job done. And um, I think that that's a testament to human resiliency and something that I would take away from that is just the fact that we shouldn't underestimate ourselves and our fellow fellow people uh, in terms of our ability to continue on, um, which you know is always good in terms of just resilience and grit. I'm a big fan of Angela Duckworth and kind of her uh, her psychology schools of thought in terms of that, the, the grit building and being able to overcome challenges. So I think that that that's a great takeaway to have. Um, and then, you know, the last one is just the fact that, you know, sometimes events like this, which are tragic in broad strokes, do have silver linings in that we've seen the adoption of technology absolutely skyrocket um, across different asset classes because COVID forced people to be digital. And COVID forced people to rethink their business models and to become more efficient and to be able to collaborate remotely. And so we're seeing a huge spike in a whole bunch of areas in terms of digital home closings, virtual tours and self-guided tours. And a lot of technology solutions are absolutely thriving right now. And so I think that, you know, the takeaway from this and from, I think, most downturns and negative kind of economic events or negative societal events is that oftentimes those can be a boon for at least certain types of technology and that there's oftentimes opportunities that comes out from that. And so I think for us as venture investors, we're certainly always going to be looking for the right opportunities in those types of situations to back that can help society and help all of the people around us get out of these types of situations and thrive in these types of situations. Really interesting, Sarah. You just mentioned one thing, digital home closings. For the less initiated amongst us, can you explain what that means exactly? Yeah, so we went from, you know, having to have a notary in person and going to, you know, your local mortgage broker and going to see all the homes in person to really just seeing a skyrocketing adoption of 3D tours and video tours and then uh, notarize one of our portfolio companies. They do virtual video notaries. Um, So obviously had a great use case during COVID as well. Blend, one of our mortgage origination software uh, portfolio companies from Fund One did a really good year as well, as especially now that the transaction volumes are really up again. People are really moving towards, I think Redfin just published something that said like 60 some percent of people bought a home sight unseen last year. Wow. It's just crazy. crazy. Like, <laughs> I think that it would have been unfathomable a few years ago that people would buy one of the biggest purchases of their life, if not the biggest purchase of most people's lives, sight unseen. And that's what's happening now. I'd love to understand if COVID has forced you guys to change your stance towards certain markets. Have you had to adapt your investment thesis at all? Have certain opportunities sprung up which previously didn't exist? I think it has adjusted how we're looking at things. There are certain types of asset classes that have been, frankly, permanently affected, I would say, to an extent in terms of the way that people behave and how we imagine the world looking moving forward. With, you know, hybrid office being one, we were already invested in industrious, but we think that they're going to just absolutely crush it as offices reopen and people adopt this more hybrid model of working and give people a little more flexibility. You know, I think for a lot of folks, it's going to make much more sense to have those kind of small, mini flexible offices for 10, 20 people instead of forcing everyone to be in one big headquarters with a couple hundred people or however many people you have in your company. 
things like that are changing how we think about it. Obviously, there's, I would say, some trends that are probably here to stay, like the jump in digital home closings, the jump in e-commerce and uh, ability to do last mile delivery and stuff like that. Like we see those probably tapering off a little bit, but it being kind of a paradigm shift in terms of sure, maybe it went from 30 to 60 and it might go down back to 50% as some people revert back to kind of status quo, but we don't think it's going to go back down to where it was. And so there's trends like that, that um, we're very excited about. I'd say we are very excited about e-commerce, about uh, kind of warehouse space and industrial, uh, about digital home closing, like I mentioned. Um, There's others that I think we're a little bit weary of still, to be honest, in terms of there's a lot of very COVID-specific business models, like air quality testing, for example, right? I think that air quality testing is always relevant and is a part of the broader IoT trend, but I don't know how much people will continue to invest in air quality testing if there wasn't a literal pandemic threat. So I think that that's like one of the examples where it feels like it's just so COVID specific or occupancy sensors, for example, because you need to make sure there's enough space for everyone to keep six feet apart. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be as much of a need kind of 18 months down the line. Yeah, I totally see what you mean. It's a little bit like these gazillions of PPE businesses that have just sprung up to service an immediate need. A a little bit, yes. And to be clear, again, I think that all of those are part of broader trends anyway, in terms of IoT and people wanting to have more data about how their spaces are being used. But I just don't know if those spikes will have the same staying power that something like a digital home closing or e-commerce would because those feel much more, I would say, like things that were really happening anyway, versus some of that IoT. I don't know if there's quite as much product market fit and quite as much direct ROI. It's always too easy to talk about the success stories and the businesses that make it. But obviously, as a venture fund, you must see your fair share of of failures. I think it'd be super insightful and interesting for our audience to understand a little bit in your words what you think are the things that ultimately lead to a company's downfall and that ultimately result in entrepreneurs not delivering successful outcomes for investors. Sure. So first off, uh, believe it or not, we've been very fortunate. We've had a couple of pivots and uh, certainly a couple that have maybe grown a little bit slower than we'd like, but everyone's still uh, continuing to chug along. Oh, wow. That's pretty incredible. And how many investments have Fifth Wall made in total? So I think at this point, we've probably made about 40 investments. Um, We did about 30 in Fund 1, and now we're probably hitting kind of that 10 to 12 mark in Fund 2. I mean, I can't get over that. It's amazing, particularly given the pandemic. So what's the secret to your success? We're very fortunate in that... You know, we've made bets on great entrepreneurs and uh, as well as, you know, it, it being a testament to our whole investment thesis, which is that having all of these real estate corporates who are valuable partners and who can provide industry insights and in some ways and knowing kind of what business models might be sustainable versus not. Um, that being said, I am happy to chat through a few of the business models that didn't necessarily fare as well. They've never really been due to an entrepreneur making a horrible mistake. Um, I think that it's been primarily market-driven more than anything. You know, one of our portfolio companies uh, that was a short-term rentals operator 
pivoted to being more of a software player during COVID. So they had a uh, master lease model and not a management model, which I do think was a business model mistake. And so they had a massive lease burden that they were on the hook for during that time. And so they ultimately pivoted. But that was, again, much more market-driven. They were doing fine pre-pandemic. Similarly, we had a mortgage lending company that unfortunately started kind of right during the uh, peak of interest rates um, around 2019. Back then, I think most lenders were struggling to keep even a positive margin at all because the costs of origination were so high and the interest rates were so high. Um, And so they've since pivoted to being more of a capital markets related mortgage software, and they're doing very well, actually. A lot of folks were able to repivot. And, you know, that's a testament to the quality of the entrepreneurs and the ability to, to be adaptable again. So we've seen a couple of those. Beyond that, it's certainly key, I would say, to, to just have folks who, who understand the industry. Like we, we see that in PropTech, having some, again, not you don't have to have, be a 20-year veteran in real estate, but that certainly helps too. And we just invested in someone who's or are about to invest in someone like that. But I think that having some exposure to what you're trying to do is valuable versus you know the entrepreneurs who, who come in and see the problem to an extent, but don't necessarily see kind of the iceberg underneath uh, of why that problem exists and understand kind of all these legacy infrastructure and operating systems and things like that, that they'd have to integrate with or play well with or overcome. I think that those folks often will get a rude awakening. But again, for us, I would say we're fortunate in that, you know, we're deeply entrenched in the industry that we focus on. And so it It's usually pretty obvious to us up front whether or not someone understands what they need to be doing. Yeah, it's a great point. It's certainly not the first time that one of my guests has actually commented on that. I mean, it's really, it's a kind of fine balance, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you really want people to have a bit of distance from the industry and see things with new eyes, you know, have a fresh take. But on the other hand, you need them to have this kind of really gritty, deep understanding of the fundamentals so they can actually navigate any pitfalls and successfully execute and implement their innovation. Right, Sarah, I'm now going to ask you to look into the future. Finish this sentence. In 10 years from now, Fifth Wall will be what? A truly global fund and platform for not just venture, but all sorts of investing across the built world in more ways than just real estate. Aha, now I'm really intrigued. It sounds a little bit cryptic. I like that. So what do you mean by in more ways than just real estate? Can you expand on that at all? Sure. I mean, I think that you know, when people think about fifth wall today, the assumption is core real estate, what's inside the box, buildings and uh, homes and things like that, which we love and is kind of what we historically focused on. But we're increasingly interested in construction, for example, which people don't always equate with real estate. We're increasingly interested in supply chain and transportation, which are very much a part of the built world and mobility, smart cities, infrastructure, and even in things like manufacturing or mining or farming, like a bunch of kind of these more tangential built world opportunities that I think are huge and largely untapped today. Like I would not be surprised if we got into all of those things 10 years down the line. We're now going to turn our attention, Sarah, to uh, equality, diversity and inclusion in real estate. This is an industry which is often dubbed you know, traditional, slow to adapt, etc. You know, insert cliche. How do you believe we're performing as an industry when it comes to being progressive and embracing equality more broadly? I would say that the performance varies organization to organization. Overall, sitting across real estate 
technology adventure. I can certainly tell you that I'm usually the only person who uh, looks like me in the room. <laughs> um, I've actually had a couple of Zoom calls that I've wanted to take screenshots of even because it's like me and like nine white dudes, basically. <laughs> um, and it's like the t- you can see all the little tiles and it's so funny because it's like such a such a trope. But it certainly is like it's it's not it's not great. It's not great adventure. It's not great in tech. And it's not great in real estate. Um, so poor grades across the board. Well, first of all, well done you for calling it out, because that in itself takes a degree of bravery. So thank you for that. And, you know, for what it's worth, I completely agree with you. I speak as a privileged white male, and therefore I am part of the problem. And I guess for that reason, I'm really keen to try and raise awareness around this issue and encourage and empower people to make small changes within the context of their own business so that real progress can be made. With that in mind, Sarah, I'd love to hear in your words what you believe are the kind of concrete actions that people or businesses can take to really improve our credentials and make this a more inclusive and diverse industry. I mean, I think it's about, this is going to sound very McKinsey of me now, but I think it's about aligning incentives and setting kind of very realistic goals and benchmarks in terms of making sure that people are actually incentivized to promote diversity and inclusion and that when people exhibit behaviors that don't do that they don't get promoted they get their bonus docked it's about actively setting realistic goals versus just putting big commitments or broad stroke statements out there i think i just read an article yesterday that was like of the 50 billion that was committed last year in the height of kind of black lives matter and everyone paying a lot of attention to that only 250 million of it has been deployed so that's a pretty poor execution relative to commitment right so i think that i think that a lot of firms might have benefited more had they said we commit 50 million dollars uh, and by next year or by 2 years from now we will have hired a chief diversity officer we have like a 10 or 20% target for diverse hires, like setting like much more tangible goals rather than just saying like, this is important to us and we're going to do something and here's the pot of money, but we haven't actually really thought about how we're going to spend it. So basically, talk is cheap. It needs to be incentivized and impressed upon individuals to execute and implement, because if not, we simply have to look to history to see that we have really good form in falling short. And surely there's a super important role that you as investors can play and board non-executives to help companies prioritize this and actually force change. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen that exact same dynamic play out with sustainability and ESG. As investors and anyone who kind of deploys capital, we hold a lot of that onus and responsibility, right? Because it's not until the investors are saying, well, we can't give you money because you don't meet our ESG criteria and we filled you out through our scorecard that we have internally and you failed. There's no better motivation, I don't think, than realizing like, wow, like my business is not going to get funded if I don't do a better job with this, or I'm not going to get my bonus if I don't do a better job at this, or I might lose my job if I don't do better at this. That's kind of the only way I think to align incentives versus, you know, saying like, oh, well, it'd be nice if you did this. I do believe in assuming good intent. And so I think that most people do have good intent and are kind of trying to do it in a way. But we all have 100 priorities and we all have a lot to do. And so it's very difficult, I think, without a true impetus for people to actually be motivated to prioritize something and accelerate progress. Like you, I firmly believe in the inherent good in people. But speaking as an entrepreneur, I can personally testify to the fact that running a business is a bit like, uh, you know, operating in a war zone. You know, there is just 
stuff happening, bombs going off all the time, and you're being pulled in every single direction but the one you want to actually go in. At the same time, you're desperately trying to keep your customers happy, your team happy, your shareholders happy. And amidst all of that, even with the best of intentions, for some unknown reason, the values that you know are the right ones somehow become the hardest ones to prioritize and implement. Go into most of those boardrooms and there are not very many women, there are not very many minorities. Um, and so the, the priorities tend to be making the shareholders money, helping the company get to the next round, helping drive growth. And like to be clear, these board meetings have no shortage of items on the agenda, right? There are many very valid business priorities to cover at a lot of these board meetings. I would say that of kind of the companies I've really actively engaged with, there's only been one, frankly, where even as we were in the process of an investing conversation, the CEO made it clear multiple times that diversity really was a priority for him. And he has three daughters and is married to a minority woman. So he, as a white man, I think, um, was maybe closer to it than, than some of his peers. But I certainly admired and respected the fact that he did make it very clear that that was a priority for him. Now, Fifth Wall, not so long ago, became a B Corporation. I'd love you to tell us a little bit about, first of all, what it means to be a B Corporation. And secondly, where Fifth Wall is in its journey to become a more diverse and inclusive organisation. We did become a B Corp, which means that we have to meet certain kind of criteria in terms of just how we think about diversity and sustainability and various other civil and societal issues, essentially. I think that we frankly still have a ways to go at the more junior levels, especially where we're doing active recruiting, making the effort to try and bring folks in who come from a variety of backgrounds, and not just gender or race, but also socioeconomically. I think that's one that is in some ways a little more invisible and harder, I would say, to solve for. Where, you know, when I joined Fifth Wall, I think more than half the firm came from uh, three schools. It was uh, Harvard, Princeton, or Penn. And, you know, just by default of only recruiting from people who come from certain backgrounds and certain schools, I think you're already cutting cutting out a lot of the diversity. That's a great point. Even when I was at McKinsey, almost everyone, especially in an office like San Francisco, maybe I think there was a little bit more local schools at certain offices in the Midwest or in the South. But in San Francisco, almost everyone was at kind of an Ivy League school or Stanford. Um, maybe there were a few kids from Berkeley that were kind of the, the most diverse people in, in the starting class. So it, when you're kind of only recruiting from these uh, so-called elite institutions, you're, you're by default kind of eliminating a lot of fantastic candidates. So I think that that's something that we're actively trying to solve for moving forward. Sarah, what advice do you have to the women who are listening to this podcast thinking, I really want to follow in her footsteps, okay? How do they find the confidence to go and do what you've done? And equally, what can businesses do to nurture female entrepreneurial talent and really make sure that it fulfills its potential and rises up within the organization? There's a couple of things that I would call out. One is I frequently look around at my male colleagues and think, wow, like they're, they're really willing to put themselves out there or like they're, they're willing to kind of just do something that, you know, my natural instinct might frankly be to say, oh, I don't know if I'm qualified to do that or I don't know if I'm ready to do that, but they're willing to do it. And it's, it's inspiring, honestly. It's like I should be more willing to take those risks and take that jump and take the step up. So I think that looking at round and maybe looking at those who have had more of that confidence instilled in them from a very young age or just subtly told to them that they're not entitled to it, but kind of able and capable of doing that. 
by society is very helpful. I'd also say that one of the big learnings I've had is not to necessarily only rely on women-led networks. I think that there are some fantastic ones out there, like uh, Synergist or All Rays, which I'm a part of, um, and that women supporting women is great. But unfortunately, there's not a ton of women who are in, you know, senior investing roles or investing roles at all. And so a lot of my best mentors and sponsors have been men and have been people whose backgrounds are very different from my own. But that doesn't mean that they can't be extremely helpful and provide great advice. So I'd say that's something else that, that I would just flag as well. That's fantastic. Thank you. We're running out of time, so we're going to have to wrap up. We're going to finish with three quick fire questions. The first one. What's the best piece of professional advice that you've been given in your career that you carry around with you? I would say that in terms of just values that I carry with me, one thing that I'm always conscientious of is I want to make everyone around me look really good. And my personal goal has always been to do enough work that I can be very generous with giving credit to others um, and to never have a problem with giving more credit to others than maybe necessarily is due even. That's something that's very big for me. The other thing is definitely just making sure that there's always kind of like a step back moment in any kind of crisis. I think that I've been faced with situations where I'm like the natural instinct would be to just say like it's not possible or to freak out or to just uh, react poorly. So being told that especially as someone who already looks different and who's taken a maybe alternative path to this career than others, that, you know, my every move is probably going to be scrutinized in some ways more than others um, who have a little more of a buffer. Being able to take that step back and make sure I kind of evaluate the way I choose to respond to any situation has been very important and prevented me in various cases of, you know, being too hot-headed or responding in ways that ultimately would not have been productive. Sage advice indeed, and a, a skill that I certainly wish I was a bit more adept at. Second question, if you were to live your life again and have to choose an alternative career, what would it be? I think it would be something much more in the public sphere, like public policy or social impact related. I'd love to do something related to financial accessibility and housing affordability, kind of the other issues that are near and dear. I think I would love to do something public policy related and help with kind of urban planning and thinking about just how to solve some of the big issues that we face in terms of underbanked people and uncredited people and folks who don't have access to affordable living conditions. So that's definitely something in that space. Clearly, you're a person with very strong social values. That's nice to hear. Yeah, for sure. No, I think those things are those things are definitely very important, and uh, especially you know sitting sitting in a bit of a tower in BC land, I think it's important to to make sure that we stay grounded. Yeah. And last question, which I ask all of my guests: Who are the people who you look to for inspiration, be it in VC, in real estate, in prop tech, that you would like to invite onto this show to tell their story so that others can learn from their experiences? I'm fortunate that I get to engage with some pretty incredible people um, almost every day. So I, I'd say there's, there's definitely lots of folks that come to mind in terms of just, you know, senior executives in the real estate sphere, folks who have taken more unconventional paths to, to real estate um, and, and tech and investing, including, you know, some entrepreneurs too, who I would say have done a really good job incorporating, you know, social values and thinking about 
kind of societal good in their still very profitable business models. If I had to give one call out, I think it would be to um, Samir and Abby, who are the co-founders of a great multifamily and single-family residential startup called Isusu. They're also minorities, also immigrants. So I think that we share some of those background traits. They've founded this startup to basically help folks build credit by paying rent. Um, and they've already integrated with a bunch of great uh, institutional landlords. So they would be folks who I think would be great in terms of folks who could share their story. Well, if they're willing to come on the podcast, I'd love to have them on because they sound absolutely fascinating. Sarah Liu of Fifth Wall, thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you. And thank you for sharing your 2020 vision. Thanks for having me on and uh, look forward to keeping in touch too as you guys grow the business at Lavanda. Real Estate 2020 Vision is brought to you by Lavanda. Check out www.getlavanda.com.